All right. Hello, and welcome back to Real Seekers. I'm your host, Dale, the Real Seeker. And uh, today we have a special treat for you. I'm joined by a, a special guest, um, Jack Symes. Hey there, Jack. How's it going? I'm doing very well, Dale. Thank you for having me. I quite enjoyed that epic introduction. That was like Great. a it was like a movie trailer. I, I'm afraid <laughs> I might disappoint viewers and listeners though with it not being the Hollywood blockbuster it is that it was advertised as oh no no you'll do great trust me um but yeah that's a uh so i just want to say to the audience yes uh sorry for the late start we um we had some technical issues but we are now officially good to go here and um yeah basically we're going to be talking with jack about various issues related to uh panpsychism and then getting into the evil god challenge a little bit but before we get into today's topics and that uh this is your first time on the podcast so Kind of just want to turn it to you and just give us sort of a, an introduction as to who you are, uh, maybe a bit about your background, and if you don't mind, share a little bit about your faith journey as well. Or of course, really... so, yeah, great. So there's a there's a bunch of questions there. So who am I? Um, well, like you say, I'm Jack Symes, and it's a pleasure to be here on the podcast for the first time. Um, I am the producer of the Pan Psychast Philosophy Podcast, and that's a freely available internationally available philosophy podcast that focuses on absolutely anything in philosophy and thanks to the work of my wonderful co-hosts Andrew Horton, Oliver Marley and Rose de Castellan and people behind the scenes we're now one of the UK's leading philosophy podcasts which is uh, quite the achievement from 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 them especially. I'm also the editor of the Bloomsbury Talking About Philosophy book series and our first book Philosophers on Consciousness Talking About the Mind which I'm sure we'll get into in just a moment is now available at the very modest price of 10 pounds uk sterling and our next book philosophers on god talking about existence will be available in winter 2023 so if you maybe if you're listening to this in the future you can go to talkingaboutphilosophy.com and grab yourself a copy of that also organize some live events with the team here at the pan sidecast so we have an event coming up on june 3rd for example in the Royal Institution in London, where we'll be having uh, some some of the world's leading thinkers in conversation about some of the issues we'll talk about today. But outside of all that public philosophy stuff, I'm, I'm the uh, I'm a teacher and researcher at Durham University, looking at philosophy of mind now. Before I was doing philosophy of religion at the University of Liverpool, and off the back of that, I. I uh, had my thesis, The Evil God Challenge, which I've spoken to you via email about quite a bit before, Dale. So it's great to have this opportunity to speak to you about some of those ideas in more detail. And the PhD thesis, The Evil God Challenge, A Solution. So I go on to reject The Evil God Challenge. That's forthcoming as a book with Bloomsbury as well. And that will be the first academic analytic text on The Evil God Challenge to be published. And that will be coming out in winter 2023 as well. So that's who I am. And those are all my plugs. And now we've got them out of the way. We can engage in, in a bit of back and forth. Awesome. Awesome. Cool. So, so yeah, so you kind of mentioned there you're, you're interested in the philosophy of mind and, mm. um, and stuff like that. So the first thing I kind of want to start off with is just sort of, okay, well, what is your take with respect to human beings, at least what, mm. what is the nature of consciousness as you see it? Um, yeah, what is, what is consciousness? Good. So there are a couple of questions there as well, right? The first one is, what is consciousness? What's the problem? And then I suppose you're asking me as well what 
my thoughts are in regards to the possible solutions to the mystery. Yeah. So consciousness, what is it? Well, it's the, I hate this example, but it's just, a, it's so obvious because I'm drinking a coffee right now. Like it's the taste of coffee. It's the fear of getting onto a plane. It's thinking one plus one equals and that experience of figuring it out in your head. And it's all those experiences. So consciousness is experience. It's the something, it's likeness to uh, the world. It's, it's their experiential properties. And you might think that if, the whole of our understanding of the world was captured in terms of physics, then you wouldn't have a place for where this non-physical seeming property falls into the picture. Like you can't open my brain and see my fear. You can't open my brain and see me doing one plus one equals two. It doesn't seem like physical science can get a handle on those sorts of questions. So we've got a big problem here, right? How do we explain these seemingly non-physical experiences um, how can we account for consciousness in our grand theory of everything mm -hmm. and you might take a few different approaches to that broadly speaking in in the book we characterize it as this we say you might be a dualist so you might think that there are physical properties and non-physical properties or physical substances and non-physical substances and in the context of your podcast which i see as like aimed at um, discussions around philosophy of religion in particular. You know, people who are religious, a part of the certainly the five major world religions, would embrace some form of dualism in the sense that the traditional view being that they have a soul and they have a body and they're unionized in some way. There are a bunch of problems with that view which we could get into. You might also be a physicalist. So the second camp says that there are just physical things. Now the boring old physicalism that just says like physics can explain it. I'm not a big fan of that view but the views that say that here are the reasons why you think you have consciousness here are the reasons why the illusion comes about those sorts of solutions i'm more uh, favorable towards those radical forms of what they call illusionism and then finally you might have a view of panpsychism and panpsychism says that there is physical stuff out there in the world but the intrinsic nature of that physical matter is consciousness. Consciousness is a ubiquitous feature of the cosmos. It's everywhere. And a couple of ways you could take that. You might say that the whole world is made of consciousness fundamentally, like it's a, it's a macro, and then individually minds break down from there, so top down. Or you might say that every little proton, neutron, electron has a little bit of consciousness, and when they come together in a certain way, it gives rise to unified conscious experiences, complex consciousness, interesting types of consciousness that that you or I presumably have. Now, so that's the that's the those are the positions. I suppose I'm quite happy with any of the positions in terms of versions of panpsychism and certain versions of illusionism. I don't consider myself to label as a I wouldn't label myself as one of those views. I'm quite happy to see where the the arguments go where the reasons takes me and and not commit to one at this point in time interesting okay so a couple of things that you kind of mentioned so in terms of the, the first part like what what is consciousness and that sort of thing you, you mentioned it it's this phenomenological qualia you know like what it feels like to experience that this or that kind of thing um you so you wouldn't think that individual 
things like thoughts. They're, they're not an, an inherent part of consciousness proper. It's really just this sentience aspect, right? Thoughts aren't part of consciousness proper. So yeah, I think you could have consciousness without thoughts or content, right? I, yeah. I'm not sure how controversial it is to say something like that, but that, that makes sense to me. There's this view within philosophy of mind, uh, the view of Mary Albahari talks about length or views within Hinduism, especially that, that Brahman, this ultimate nature of the universe is yeah. contentless consciousness. Like it's, if you strip away all of your cognisensory data, like all of your, in the, the information you gather through your senses, or all of the experiences you have, cognitively speaking, if you took all that away, then I think you would still be left with some kind of pure consciousness. I think that's the sort of thing that people are getting at when they have these mystical experiences in Hinduism and Buddhism and other schools of thought, that they tap into the underlying nature of the world. And there isn't necessarily, it doesn't necessarily have to be content in that consciousness. I can see the appeal of such views. Okay. All right. Cool. And um, you've kind of, my second question, you've kind of already answered this a little bit, but you, you've mm -hmm. kind of discussed this panpsychist view. So, you know, I was going to ask you to just kind of generally explain it and how does that relate to other positions? So you did mention, um, you know, for example, I have people in my audience who take an idealist uh, mm -hmm. perspective, or obviously myself, I would take a theist or a deistic stance. So you know, what maybe kind of explain anything more about panpsychism? Are there are there different varieties of panpsychism? And how does that relate to views like idealism or the versus theism? Hmm. Yeah, good. That's a great question. So there are lots of different positions within the panpsychist umbrella. How do they relate to issues of theism, etc. more generally? Okay, so what I've said so far, it's built from the ground up again. Panpsychism says that consciousness is everywhere. Let's just take that broad stroke definition as a starter and like say you might take a couple of positions there you might say the whole universe is just one big conscious mind and it breaks down to little minds or you might say there are little minds within physical properties and they come together to form other complex types of minds you might also take a couple of other different positions within there and you could be a physicalist panpsychist or a panpsychist physicalist in which you don't deny the existence of the physical world and you say there is a physical world that's mind independent and that world fundamentally is made up of consciousness or you could take the position as you've alluded to a as you've alluded to a moment ago of idealist panpsychism which would say that there is no physical reality outside of yourself that's in some sense illusory and it's all mind dependent and that's fundamentally made of consciousness too. So there's no physical stuff. It's all just mind stuff, says the idealist. Now, the, those are some of the positions you might take and I'm happy to go into them in more depth if, if you'd like to. But I suppose your, your second question right, was something like this. How does it relate to the other types of positions? So I could say something briefly on that. So for the dualist, for example, the classical theist, the orthodox theist, maybe that's the label you were giving yourself a moment ago, says that you've got the soul and you've got the body. Here are a couple of classic problems with that, which I really feel the force of. So you might have the causal closure problem that says, how is it that the soul interacts with the body? How does non-physical matter 
non-physical stuff interact with physical stuff. It doesn't what kind of law of nature you're going to have there. And maybe that one's not as strong as you might think. I'm, I'm not too upset about that one. But there's another one which Philip Goff speaks about in his book, Galileo's Error, in which he discusses the analogical problem of little miracles. So if you had a soul interacting with the body, you'd expect all kinds of unexplainable behavior that couldn't be accounted for by physical science in terms of brain activity. It'd be like if God was constantly interacting with the world, causing little miracles that didn't have physical explanations. And when you scan the brain, you see it lighting up in all sorts of random different ways that you couldn't explain. The only way to explain them would be to posit the existence of a non-physical soul. And that's just not what we find. So it doesn't seem like it's, we need to introduce it for that reason. It looks like a problem for the view. And then in terms of why you'd favor the panpsychist view over that, it would be one of parsimony, that we shouldn't multiply entities beyond necessity. And that if we can explain it by just mind stuff as the idealist does, or the fact that physical properties and non-physical properties are two sides of the same coin rather than being two separate things, as the dualist says, then we should do that instead. So it avoids some of those main problems, and it also gives you a more parsimonious theory of the world by adopting panpsychism. That's just in contrast to dualism. We can talk about contrast between physicalism too if you, you'd like to. Yeah, well, I, believe, I see in the uh, live chat, we've got a question kind of talking about that there from Kevin. He's asking, why not just say that consciousness is what humans call the firing of neurons in certain ways? Um, this, for him, he thinks this is simpler. This is more parsimonious. So, yeah, what's your take? Yeah. Okay. So, I assume Kevin there, and Kevin, do get back in the chat if I'm mischaracterizing your view here. You might think that there's no problem at all. It's just physical properties. It's just uh, neurons firing certain ways. But there is, there's an added problem there, right? Which is there is this, there's this experiential property on top of just the neurons firing. So why is it that my brain processing doesn't just go on in the dark? If physicalism was true, if the view that physical science gives us and just tells us that here's all the brain activity, here are all the neurons firing in your words, Kevin. And then it's like, okay, so how, how do I account for my experience within that picture? Where does my taste of coffee, the taste of the spice, the, the feeling of anxiety, how can I capture those experiences in terms of neurons firing? It seems like a really odd question to ask. Like, it doesn't seem like that type of language and that kind of, uh, that kind of, structure and methodology can be applied to those experiences and it's just a fundamentally this is just the re-emergence the resurrection of the classic mind-body problem right that how do the non-physical stuff and the physical stuff come together and we're just homing in on the on the on the experiential conscious stuff and saying well how does it fit into our modern picture of of science Awesome. All right. Oh, so, so, so can I just say, so Kevin, yes, it would be more parsimonious. You're right. Sorry, I just saw the end of the question there. It would be more parsimonious, but it would rely on you either ignoring or rejecting the problem entirely. And I'd need to hear a reason for why we should reject the problem. Awesome. And uh, you'll be happy to know Kevin says you got him right. So uh, you, you did justice to him there. All right. Um, just before I... Uh, lose track one uh, one other person in the audience and then we'll get back to my list here but um, 
they mentioned Nitty mentions. Um, I like David Chalmers' silicon chip thought experiment uh, that pretty much diffuses the idea of consciousness. I, I have to admit, I'm not familiar with this. Are, are, are you familiar with this thought experiment? Or no, I, Nitty, if you could ex give a brief description in the chat, that would be really helpful. I'd be interested to to know what the thought experiment is, and also I I don't think that. David Chalmers thinks that you can diffuse the whole problem of consciousness. Um, but you know, maybe Fair. you can correct me on that point, Nitty. I'll be interested to, to hear some more. Fair enough. We'll, we'll come back to that. So, okay. So, so kind of going back to, to my list of questions and so you had, you did kind of hint that um, about like my next question was just going to be what, what are some of the main arguments that uh, you think are the best arguments in favor of the pan psychist view and obviously you've mm -hmm. been kind of giving some reasons to favor that view over others and that sort of thing so um yeah i, I guess do you want to kind of just lay out three or so of, of the top arguments that you think are the best and mm. um yeah and go ahead that's good okay so i've already given one reason which i think is the best reason which is one of parsimonian simplicity that the dualist has the problem of saying how these two things come together, how they interact, how it can be accounted for, is compatible with the findings of contemporary science. And panpsychism puts consciousness in the gap of our theory of reality. What is the intrinsic inner nature of physical properties? Well, people like uh, Philip Goff or Galen Strawson, uh, Miri Albahari, people in contemporary philosophy of mind Certain David Chalmers as well, and certainly uh, knows their work well, is that they say, well, consciousness just fits that hole, that that's what the inner in, in nature of matter is. And you can think of this from like a Schopenhauerian perspective or the perspective of some of these meditative um, experiential religions of Hinduism and Buddhism, etc. Again, that if you want to know what it the inner nature of these dispositions of this physical matter is just look inside yourself, right? Just focus on your own existence. Schopenhauer asks, like, what is all that stuff out there? Well, you know, it's got to be like it's in here. Like, that's what it's like to be physical. This is the inner world of physical things. So you might think that's one motivation. Second, again, I want to make sure that I'm talking about stuff which your audience are going to find interesting and relevant to them is that you might have pantheistic motivations for adopt, adopting panpsychism. So pantheism says that God is the universe and the universe is God. The theist has all sorts of problems when they want to explain how God is able to hear their prayers, how he's supposed to, supposed to change the future, how she's supposed to have knowledge of everything yet be outside of time and space. Well, for the pantheist you might be motivated to say that god is identical to the world that the world is this great conscious mind this great conscious mind breaks down into little minds like yours and mine and so god's able to interact have knowledge and, and have all these relationships with the world that perhaps the theist would like her to have a thirdly another motivation for panpsychism just a cool world for you, right? It's just exciting and boring old dualism or uh, physicalism. No, I suppose the third view would be, okay, so let's look at the other positions. They face significantly 
worse problems than the panpsychist does. Like, if you want answers to these questions, what is consciousness and where does consciousness fit into our grand theory of everything? And panpsychism gives you the answer to both and gives you this new science of consciousness or this research program where you can start figuring figuring out some of the 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 problems but again i don't want to pretend like i'm committed to panpsychism and i hope i'm doing it justice on behalf of the panpsychists i'm quite happy to to change my mind on its explanatory power awesome okay so kind of flipping flipping over here to the opposite end because i wanted to get your take on some of the main major objections and arguments against uh the panpsychist view you know mm. things like obviously there's the incredulous stare that you've kind of gotten but uh you know things like the combination problem or the subject summing problem um what's your take on some of these objections yeah well i think that they're big problems for the panpsychist and obviously there are a lot of people doing their PhD theses or people doing uh, lots of interesting papers and work on trying to solve the combination problem. So the combination problem for listeners and viewers who don't know is that if you're a panpsychist and you think that if you're a bottom-up panpsychist and you think that every little physical property, every fundamental physical particle has a little bit of consciousness, how is it that these particles come together brain-wise and give rise to a unified conscious perspective like the consciousness that you're experiencing now why haven't you got loads of little experiences why is it that how is it that you've got one conscious mind now rather than lots of little ones and that's that's known as the combination problem and likewise you can have it the other way too don't think that pos by positing the universe as a conscious being is on the macro level that that problem disappears you can have the d combination problem how is it that this great big mind can break up into a lot of individual minds that seemingly are in a meaningful way distinct experientially from the from the great mind. So yeah, I think it's a big problem. Now, all I can do is refer listeners and viewers to Hedda Hassel Merck's work, especially in integrated information theory that thinks that once you've got a system which has so much integrated information, it reaches a certain level and it becomes conscious and you can have a clear cutoff point between conscious beings, unified experiences and non-unified ones, non-sufficiently integrated systems. And that's one possible solution. I think there's some good promise in that view in particular. Out elsewhere, I've got this chapter with Miriel Bahari in the final chapter of our book, Philosophers on Consciousness, talking about the mind. Very much Miri's ideas and Miri's taken them from traditions within Hindu thought again. And the idea for her is something like this, that you can have a pure state of consciousness underlying reality. And that within that, that is a, a non-perceptual being, that's that kind of pure consciousness, that ocean of consciousness is consciousness without contents. And then when these individual people like you and I emerge from this ocean of pure consciousness, because that was contentless, and because it was unable to perceive the world in and of itself, we are perceptual beings built on non-perceptual, a non-perceptual ontology. Might be doing a, 
and justice to Mira's view before and she's seen me on podcast before discussing this view and quite rightly emailed me to say that's not my view so let me just say you should buy the book uh, philosophers on consciousness if you want to hear more about that view and explain uh, probably more accurately and more elegantly too Awesome. All right. Well, one thing I want to ask you, because uh, obviously from the other side, I, I'm a I'm a dualist kind of thing. I think that, that makes most sense of the evidence. But mm. one of the most persuasive arguments for me uh, for du substance dualism kind of thing is one from Richard Swinburne. And it's it's a modal argument for it. So it uh, I don't remember the premises, but it's essentially, you know, premise one would be something like I can conceive of a of near-death experiences right where my soul floats out of my body so that's conceivable there's a possible yeah. world where that happens and essentially the argument says but the law of identity would mean it if you're identical kind of thing right then you shouldn't be able to conceive of that there wouldn't be a possible world where the two things are separate substances type things mm. so i'm not sure what what's your take on an argument like that because that's something that persuades me i suppose i might be open to the possibility that that is good grounds or a good argument in favor of the view. Mm -hmm. But I think the arguments against it are you know, simply stronger. So I can see there are good arguments for the existence of God, but there's the problem of evil and the problem of hiddenness. And I think they give us pause to think about whether or not that the God hypothesis is true. So I might have somebody who looks just like my... I don't know, my old friend Richard, he looks like him, he speaks like him, he seems to be walking up to me and shaking my hand and my hand and saying hello. But you know, that's good evidence for the fact that my friend Richard is in front of me, trying to have a conversation with me and saying hello. Then I remember that I was at Richard's funeral like seven years ago. There was nothing left of his body, he was destroyed. There are really strong grounds for thinking he no longer exists. Right. So maybe I'm having a dream, maybe I'm hallucinating, maybe I just really miss him and I'm just creating this illusion of him in the real world. So, you know, I might have good reasons for thinking these things are true, but when I'm presented with an argument to show that it, that's an, an unreasonable belief, obviously we should be changing our, changing our minds. So I'd say to the to the dualist and to your position, Dale, I'd, I'd give those, those two problems or three problems that I gave a moment ago, the causal closure problem, the problem of a parsimony in terms of comparing it to other views and then the problem of can you identify any brain activity which is not explicable in terms of physical science and needs instead this uh this dualist picture of interaction with the brain if that makes sense yeah yeah no it does um all right cool uh, i i do see that um someone kind of comes in we were talking about david chalmers thought experiment and he kind of explains what that's about so it's saying if you replace all the neurons in my brain with silicon chips would my consciousness still exist that's um, good yeah that's a nice problem um and that's a, it was an interesting thought experiment so you might be an identity theorist right and so some people we've spoken to on the pan sidecast podcast are identity theorists such as uh, laura gow one of our recent guests and if you're an identity theorist, then you think that the substrate matter, right, that you have to have a biological system to give rise to consciousness and conscious experiences are identical to the brain activity itself. So you might say, where's my redness? Well, you point to it in my brain. It's that activity there. They're identical. 
And so if you switched out all of my neurons in my brains for silicon chips, then it wouldn't be this con it wouldn't be consciousness for sure on some of those views. And it certainly wouldn't be my consciousness. And that taps into a more difficult problem in terms of the continuity of identity. But if you're asking, take away the question of whether or not it would be your consciousness, I think the most answers to that are going to take us too far afield in terms of questions of identity. And you just ask whether or not that system made of silicon chips can be conscious. I think that on the dualist account, on the physicalist account, on the panpsychist account, all of them can accommodate this sort of consciousness. And um, you just have to be prepared to to do so. And I think, unlike a lot of questions in philosophy, I think we'll have a good insight into that the more and more um, as technology develops. Gotcha. All right. Cool. So. Okay, well, at this point, I, I kind of want to transition from panpsychism and the nature of consciousness into, okay, God, right? I, I'm a Christian theist, a lot of my audience are Christian theists, and you kind of hinted it in your last um, in your last statement that uh, you're not persuaded by arguments for God's existence and that sort of thing. So it, I just want to turn it over to you. Um, do you think that there are any good arguments that maybe persuasive to you, even if not overall convincing, but in isolation, at least you think there's something to them and you think there's merit to them? Yeah, I think there are excellent reasons for believing in God. And I think a lot of the arguments that you would probably cite, you say yourself, Dale, and I'd be interested to know which ones uh, you find persuasive yourself, I find compelling. Um, I wasn't raised a theist. I was raised to be agnostic. And although there is lots of Christian themes throughout the education system here in the UK. I wasn't converted to theism by any of the social cultural forces. So I've just been fortunate to be able to just look at the philosophy, look at the arguments and sort of go where it all takes me. And not many people are fortunate to be in that situation. I, I recognize that. So it's, and I'm quite happy to be convinced by the arguments. I I'm not going to be attending church anytime soon. I've been to church a few times in the last year and it's just not for me. I just don't think I just don't enjoy the the service or anything like that. Um, but I am persuaded by some of the arguments for why you might think that the entity behind all of those practices exists, this god of metaphysics, if you will. So I like the cosmological argument. I think it's powerful. So everything that exists, everything that begins to exist have a, has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. Then you do some deduction to work out that this thing has to be timeless, baseless, conscious, etc. I'm persuaded more and more by the argument from fine-tuning only because the people I'm hanging around with at the moment in philosophical circles are trying to convince me this is the best reason to believe in God. I'm mm -hmm. persuaded by it, perhaps not as much as the cosmological argument, but most of all, I'm convinced by the ontological argument, and that's an unpopular thing to say in philosophy. So God is, pos God is possible. Therefore, if it's possible, if he's internally coherent, then uh, God is actual, because by definition, God is a necessary being. Awesome. Yeah. So you you kind of asked me there what which arguments uh, convince me the most. And mm -hmm. so absolutely cosmological argument. Um, interestingly enough, um, I prefer the contingency version rather than the Kalam cosmological one, uh, just because I think it it's a wider thing, wider scope kind of thing. And yeah. it incorporates 
everything the Kalam gives you plus additional arguments for the contingency. So, um, and my favorite argument, uh, I like axiological arguments as well. Mm -hmm. So things like the moral argument, or I, I've kind of, as part of my master's, I developed a, a very rough version of a new argument from beauty um, mm -hmm. for God's existence. And of course that ontological argument, I lit up when you said that, um, I think, you know, certain modal versions, that's the best, the strongest argument we've got. So yeah, I, I love that one as well. Um, all right, well, uh, let me narrow things down. So you've kind of given these general arguments for general theism or a, yeah. a, 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 as Eugene Nagasawa says, a real maximally great being type thing. Mm. Um, what about when it comes to specific concepts or religious concepts of God, uh, such as the Christian God or the Islamic God? Do you think there have been any arguments for those specific types of gods that, again, you're not overall convinced, but you think there might be merit to, to stuff like that? Or Yeah, that's good. So you, you've, you've asked me then to narrow my scope from a broad arguments for God and speak about these individual religions. But I suppose the question you asked is still quite broad in the sense that are there any merit to any of them? I suppose it... Okay. So I don't think there are good reasons to be a Christian, a Jew, or a Muslim for take the Abrahamic faiths. I think there are good reasons to believe in the, the God of those religions merely as a metaphysical hypothesis, but not with all of the scriptural baggage and religious experiences that come with those belief yeah. systems. So I want to say that first, but in terms of christian theology and the christian concept of god and the trinitarian concept of god in particular i think there are some benefits to that view over the view represented of god in representative of god within uh, judaism or islam for example so yeah. i think uh, billy craig's got this great argument about the trinitarian doctrine being favorable to those which just don't have this trinitarian view of god so if god is maximally loving or if God is all-loving or omnibenevolent, then there must be another object of God's love. But if God is there in the first instance, then who's God going to love? Well, you at least need a second aspect of God, which is somehow identical, but different enough for God to freely give that love to some other. And so you might think that's the Word, or you might think that's the Holy Spirit. And so I can see within a Christian framework, given the arguments that one might have for the existence of a omnibenevolent being, how the Trinitarian view might end up falling out of that. And also I can see how if God is radically different from the world, then incarnating herself into the form of Jesus or some other being. And remember, these views are not unique to um, not unique to Christianity either because you've got polytheistic views across a range of different faiths and you've got incarnations within Hindu views as well. And so for the Hindu or for the Christian, this God who is seemingly outside of space and time can then become part of the world and have this physical aspect as well as this non-physical aspect and you might think that the greatest conceivable being would both be physical and non-physical rather than just non-physical. Now, again, I don't want to say that all of those arguments should be 
convincing to the extent that one embraces the Trinity or one ex embraces the incarnation of Jesus. I think there are good reasons to be skeptical of both those views more generally. But yeah, I can see why someone might find some merit for these views if they had a broadly Christian worldview already. Gotcha. Okay. And la last uh, follow-up question on the religion-specific aspect, if you don't mind. But I'm just curious, have you encountered, like within Christian apologetics, for example, uh, people do make secular arguments based on the Jesus' resurrection. You, you know, yeah. people like Gary Habermas, he's a famous philosopher at Liberty University. Um, it, like, have you looked into these? What, what's your take on these types of arguments type deal? Yeah, I don't know what to make of them. Again, I, I'm annoying as a guest, Dale, because I no, see no. myself more of a pu public philosopher than a, a philosopher who's trying to develop their own worldview and their own views. The, my own views tend to just fall out of the engagement with different positions rather than you know, trying to figure out something from the first-person perspective. I suppose on a personal level, though, if you push me towards having a view on them, I'm not persuaded by the arguments for Jesus' resurrection simply because I don't know enough about it. And there are people who are a lot more qualified than me to talk about the historical evidence and whether or not uh, in terms of like Bayesian probability or whether or not the historical evidence is best explained by the actual resurrection of Jesus or not, then you know there's going to be better people to, to ask that. And I wouldn't want to throw my hat in the ring without much reflection on those problems. However, what I will say, an, an interesting position you might think about, I've been speaking to Philip Goff about this here at Durham University quite recently. We're out until two or three in the morning arguing about this after a pub crawl on the topic quite recently. And I'm sure Philip won't mind me saying, but we were speaking about whether or not the experiences of Jesus after the resurrection have a sort of trippy quality to them. And so mm. this view that Philip's discussing i'm not sure how much i should go into it how much to talk about these views openly and, and publicly but you know they they all have like a sort of a certain feel that they're, they're not really examples of the physical resurrection again there are going to be biblical scholars who can tell you more about whether or not they're um too you know, out there or not so gotcha. I'm, not, I'm not persuaded by them personally you won't catch me in church anytime soon but <laughs> if enough. uh it's better off asking somebody else about that yeah, fair enough. No, I just wanted to get your take. Uh, all right, cool. So let's move back to the philosophy. Um, and this is an area that um, I know you specialize in because you helped me with it during my master's, um, <laughs> the dreaded infamous evil God challenge, right? So we've kind of talked about evidences for general theism, um, yeah. but what about deciding his moral character? Is he good versus evil? So and on that front, there is this evil God challenge. How do you, Mr. Theist, prove that God, his character is actually good? And mm. in the first place, I just want to turn it to you to just kind of broadly, you know, what what is the evil God challenge? What, in a nutshell, summarize what it is for anyone that might not know what it's about. This is great. So, yes, it's a, uh, I can't really dodge the questions on the evil God challenge as well as I did the uh, questions of Jesus' resurrection, because this was the topic of my first uh, PhD, and it's uh, a forthcoming book of mine, The Evil God Challenger Solution, which is out towards the end of this year. And so the problem has a fairly recent, but at the same time, sort of longer than you might expect history. So I trace its roots back to René Descartes in 1641 or David Hume in 1779, 
William Paley's probably the longest discussion of it in the philosophical literature, which is 1802. And these philosophers are asking whether or not it's more reasonable to believe that God is evil than whether or not God is good. So Stephen Law popularizes this challenge in his paper of the same name published in Religious Studies in 2010. And the question is this, why is believing in a good God significantly more reasonable than believing in an evil God? And that might sound quite silly at first, but then you start to unpack the challenge and see some of its virtues. So the challenge or the challenger, let's call the evil God challenger those asking that question, the evil God challenger, the challenger, the challenger says, well, you've got all these reasons for thinking that God, good God exists, right? Uh, you've got the cosmological argument, which we've mentioned, the argument from fine tuning, moral arguments, etc., and all of the ontological argument too. And all these arguments are just as helpful to me, the evil God believer, than you, the good God believer. I might face, you might face the problem of evil. I face the, face the problem of good. Why would an evil God allow so much good to exist? In response to the problem of evil, the theist says things like, well, to have genuinely good actions, we need to choose between evil and goodness. To learn, to develop, to have more opportunities to do good. We need hurricanes so we can have hurricane relief funds. We need people to fall off their bikes so they can learn and become great bikers, right? And you have all these theodicies and defenses. And you can simply flip them, or most of them are flippable in defense of the evil God hypothesis too. That to have genuinely malevolent actions, you need someone to be able to choose evil over goodness. And it's not a matter of soul building or character building, it's soul destroying. But for so much of our history as human beings, we've faced so much um, so many unfortunate circumstances and losing those that we love, as we all unfortunately will experience even today with all of the uh, medical research and scientific findings we have. We still have so much misery to combat the goodness and the state of the world for non-human animals. Um, I mean, anyone who's ever picked up a book on the topic or watched a David Attenborough documentary knows that the world is not a place beaming with sunshine and happiness for very many of the world's creatures. So, okay, what's the point of all that? You've got loads of good, you've got loads of evil, you've got loads of good arguments for thinking that there's a non-physical conscious being who's all-powerful and all-knowing. So why would you favor the good God hypothesis over the evil God hypothesis, asked the challenger. And yeah, so that's the problem. Like, let, let me just give it in a couple of premises, though. So this is Stephen Law's version of the challenge and the most popular version of the challenge to date. So if you didn't catch any of that, here's the argument in a nutshell. Right, so I, I label this one the, the absurdity challenge. And it says, the evil God hypothesis is absurd. The good God hypothesis is no more reasonable than the evil God hypothesis. And therefore, the good God hypothesis is also absurd. And so that's the most basic and most popular version of the challenge to date. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. I think um, I, I remember when we were kind of discussing, there's the three types, the the weak yeah. type, I think, as Asha Lancaster Thomas defines it, right? And then there's those two strong versions. I, I forget which one Stephen Law is. The, I think it's the uh, strong challenge from incoherence, maybe, or something, because you, like you said, one concept's absurd. Therefore, the if they're symmetrical, 
symmetrical, then the other is absurd as well. Mm. Um, and believe it or not, though, I remember talking to you, I found that the weak version where we just take take away the good theist justification is actually the stronger stronger one in my view. But um, yeah, I wanted to kind of, you already kind of hinted at an answer, but do you want to, in terms of the symmetry thesis, um, do you want to just give some some of the main reasons that you find, you think that, look, these two concepts are not symmetrical? Mm. Um, yeah, great. So a couple of points on your discussion of it just beforehand, though. So yeah, you've got these three different versions of the challenge. You've got the weak one, which just says, so why would you favor the good God hypothesis over the evil God hypothesis if they, on the face of it, seem roughly as reasonable? So that's the weak version. That's the version that you favor, Dale, uh, which I, I reject. And I could tell you why I reject it here, but maybe we shouldn't go into the, the back and forth with it. Stephen Law is, uh, he's not the exclusivity, he's the absurd challenge so he thinks that because evil god is obviously absurd so you might think because of the amount of goodness in the world he's obviously shouldn't should be rejected and the same is true of good god the exclusivity one is what i think well a version of the exclusivity one is perhaps the best version of all three of these well i think i try and merge the absurdity view with the exclusivity view and give what i call the combined challenge we could talk about that in a moment but the exclusivity challenge says, well, look at all these arguments for good God. Look at all these arguments for evil God. It now looks like we've got two monotheisms that are roughly as reasonable. And for the sake of argument, let's say they both have high degrees of probability, but two monotheisms that are mutually exclusive can't both be true. So therefore, something's gone wrong and you shouldn't favor the good God hypothesis. Um, okay, so why do I think that the good God hypothesis is more reasonable in the context of the evil God challenge. So originally when I set off to do my PhD thesis, I was defending atheism and I was rejecting good God theism or orthodox theism, Abrahamic theism on the basis of the evil God challenge. So I found the argument to be persuasive. I thought it was one of the best arguments against the existence of God. And I was very much in Asher Lancaster's uh, Asha Lancaster Thomas's camp on this and spent many conversations with her agreeing with her wholeheartedly and vice versa. But then I came to I find an asymmetry, a symmetry breaker between these two hypotheses. And it, it comes down to the structure and the nature of the evil God challenge. So I'll try and put it forward nice and simply here without a lot of the conceptual baggage. And it would go like this, right? So the evil God challenger doesn't actually think the cosmological argument and the argument from religious experience and the ontological argument. They don't think those arguments actually give you a God, right? That Stephen Law and proponents of the challenge are just saying, let's give the theists the benefits of the doubt and say that these arguments enjoy some credibility. So they say, you, they have two approaches, right? They either go, one... I will accept the metaphysical and epistemic assumptions of your view and then just give a different conclusion. So an example of that would be the cosmological argument. Conclusion, the universe must have a cause, right? Both views can take that, evil God challenger and the theist, and it works just as well for both of them. So the challenger needn't change anything. But there are some arguments where the evil God challenger is going to have to tinker with the underlying uh, metaphysical assumptions, epistemic assumptions 
of their view or even alter premises in the arguments. So a good example of that might be the privation theory of evil. So the traditional view says evil isn't something that's actually there in the world. Like it's just a lack of being. It's a lack of form. It's a lack of um, it's a lack of reality. Like it's a, like the hole in my sock isn't evil, but it's not actually something that's out there. It's a lack of form. It's a lack of matter. And so you might have to adapt that as a challenger and say, all right, well, let's flip that on its head and say that goodness is just the privation of evil. And does that work just as well? So now the challenge doesn't just take the form, why does the cosmological argument give you more reason to believe in good God than evil God? It's why does the argument based on the privation theory of evil and the underlying premise of the privation theory of goodness give you more reason for one than the other? So it's argument plus underlying assumption. Right, okay. Said I wasn't gonna make it overly complicated, so I feel like I am. So. Here's the, here's the solution which I give in the book. I start off by putting the challenge forward. And then I say, there are two broad approaches within the philosophy of religion when it comes to discussing God. We've got the arguments for God, or the arguments for and against God. And they are the ones we've been discussing up to this point. And you might think they show that God exists or doesn't exist or is compatible or is incompatible is true or false etc and so you're looking at the truth value of god's existence but then you've got this whole other aspect of philosophy of religion which tries to understand the nature of god and we typically call that something like philosophical theology and philosophical theology stays neutral on the question of god's existence it simply says if God exists, then what would God's nature be like? And so I say, in the literature, all everyone's been doing is just focusing on arguments for or against the existence of evil God. And I say, well, given the assumptions of the evil God challenge, which is something like, for the benefit of the doubt, we'll say that that broad framework works, then you know, but I can parody that, I can parallel that, I can mirror your approach for evil God. I say, can the evil God challenger parody, mirror, parallel arguments from philosophical theology? And so I go through the three main strands, the perfect being theology, creation theology, and revelation theology. And I say, look, there are significantly better or stronger reasons for favoring the attribution of goodness to God than evil to God. Just give one quick example, right? Just take the most basic example that comes to mind, like the Bible, okay? So let's say, for the sake of argument, that the Bible is a reliable source of knowledge about God's nature. The challenger has to say that, because if they were to go like, the Bible's a load of rubbish, it can't give you any knowledge of God, then they're not doing the evil God challenge. They're just rejecting theism. But the benefit of the evil God challenge is that they pretend to be on board with it and show that even if we accept those assumptions, it doesn't work. So they have to say that, like the theist, that the Bible does give you a reliable source of knowledge. Some of the challenges do that, right? And some of the evil God challenges in the 80s and 90s say, well, if you look in the Bible, then you will find a character who is racist, who is genocidal, who is the enemy of LGBTQ plus rights, who is the enemy of women's rights. That looks like an evil being. Obviously, though, God is also a great character in the scripture in the sense that 
literally dies on a cross for everybody else selflessly, um, heals the sick, yada, yada, yada. You know it better than I do, Dale. So, but ultimately, trivially, every good action or every evil action in the Bible is ultimately God's responsibility. So then you might think, okay, there's a level playing field. You've got good reasons to say that God is good or evil because of God's actions in Scripture. But then there's this, these extra claims in Scripture, which are explicit or teleological claims that say, ultimately, says God in the Scripture, you know, I have your, your happiness rather than your misery in mind, that I am good, says the Lord, right? And, I, and these are the reasons that, um, which can't be parodied by the, by the evil God challenger. So last point on this before we move on is that you could take those explicit or teleological claims within the scripture and contextualize God's evil actions. How could what but you can't do that the other way around. You can't contextualize God's good actions by explicit evil statements and teleological claims in the scripture because there are none. And again, like so those are a, that's a good reason to tip the scales very slightly in favor of good God rather than evil God. And when you look across all of these different examples and different arguments, you'll find that the vast majority of them favor theism over or traditional theism, good God theism over evil God theism. And there are no arguments to my knowledge within philosophical theology that favor evil God over good God. Yeah. I, that was one thing that I found interesting that even Stephen Law admits there are some good God favoring asymmetries and stuff like that. But he just thinks that they're so insignificant. They're like little pebbles or something rather than boulders. If you're putting rocks in a scale or, so, or something like that. But um, yeah. Okay. Um, one, one follow-up question that is interesting to me, because I got this idea from, from Asher Lancaster Thomas, but to try to find an axiological asymmetry, something, you know, like I think everyone would agree, look, a good God is definitely more valuable um mm. relative to an evil god and I, I tried to find evil god fa favoring you know we would value an evil god and it was hard to find anything but uh do you mind if i just ask like what, what's your take on that have you seen any any good axiological based asymmetries that you think might work uh to prove that we favor a good god over an evil god or yeah i think i remember hearing or reading some of your your work on this and i'd be interested to know what you found what the end result was because in my view the arguments for favoring the existence of an evil god over a good god in terms of like well-being in terms of you know whether or not we've got reasons on a personal level to favor one over the other i didn't find the evidence to suggest that people lived more fulfilled happy um, ethical lives under good God theism than they would evil God theism. Now, we should keep in mind that there have been no religions to date that have favored the existence of one maximally evil God and no other gods. You get the dualistic polytheisms and lots of other polytheisms which favor evil God as well. But if you think that the it, we've got Egyptian gods or the Manichaean god or gods of mixed moral character within certain branches of Indonesian Hinduism, if you took those views and said, right, well, if the ethical actions of these views are, you know, the well-being of these people is 
It's no different when they favor the existence of some evil god or some mixed moral god in comparison to those who embrace orthodox Abrahamic theism, then why would it be any different with the existence of an evil god? I forget the name of the religion, but there is a study by an anthropologist who speaks of a religion that dies out in the late 20th century in San Sahara, and they believe in one evil god and one god of mixed moral character. And he describes them as one of the most egalitarian societies that he's came across and speaks very highly of their ethics, their well-being. And it involves acts of defiance against the evil god, that they throw fire at the sky and they, they show their how much they condemn evil god's nature by engaging in moral and good actions here in the world. So I think it's probably an empirical question that one goes above my pay grade and two, I don't see any reasons why one would favor one or the other on those grounds. But Dale, perhaps you're the you're the expert on this and you can show me the light. Oh, yeah. Well, not first of all, I hadn't heard of the tribe. So that that's interesting and stuff like that. But yeah, I, I don't know. It was something I struggled with because I wasn't able to really find anyone who would argue an axiological basis that would give us a reason to say, yeah, the good God probably exists versus mm. an evil God. Um, so in the end, I, I just kind of made my argument based on in order to get the existence part, I needed uh, something like the principle of optimization, right? Like the best mm. of all states of affairs will come into actuality. Um, but how, how do I get that? Cause I don't, I don't think like the reasoning of Nicholas Rescher or I uh, think John Leslie and stuff like that. I, I don't find that kind of platonic reasoning convincing and stuff. Mm. So in the end, I kind of relied on um, circular, a valid circular reasoning whereby, okay, well, first of all, we are warranted in believing in a good God in, in the first place. And then we derive from that, this principle of optimization. And then let's say the person forgets about their warrant for believing in the good God, they lose their belief stuff mm. like that but they retain this remnant and they're still warranted in that remnant and from that they can derive back to belief in a good god so like again that was the that was my argument in a nutshell kind of thing is that we we still retain this warrant kind of thing mm. even after we lose the the original reasons for belief in the good god um that was the best i could come up with for an axiological asymmetry there but yeah <laughs> um Awesome. No, it sounds really interesting. I'll be if we had longer, I'd like to hear some more about it. It's the Jehuanzi tribe. If you were interested in looking them up, I'm most likely butchering that because it revolves a bunch of sounds to making to pronouncing the name of the tribe, which I wouldn't. Uh, one, I can't do, and two, wouldn't risk offending anybody by attempting to do so. Awesome. Yeah. No. Definitely. I'll, I'll look into that, and if there's any sources, I'll post it on the blog for people as well. So. Fantastic. Okay, what well, one thing um, I really want to ask you about with this evil God challenge type mm. deal? Um, it's it's something that I've disagreed with fully, but I know Stephen Law likes it as well as Asha likes this. It's the the bracketing move, right? So yeah, they, they might say, uh, well, let me have you. What is the bracketing move, and what's your take on it? Do you think it's a a valid move or not? Well, there are a couple of different types of bracketing move which one did you have in mind for the one that asher and stephen defend um basically essentially just the one whereby look any any and all asymmetries in you know so there's three categories of asymmetries that theists have argued mm. for you might say a priori ones you know a, an evil god's just in principle impossible versus a good god 
then there's the natural theology asymmetries arguments yeah. for god and then there's the uh things based on the problem of evil and stuff like that those asymmetries so they bracket out the first two categories of asymmetry and say the only ones that really matter here are, are the ones related to the problem of evil and mm. the odysseys and stuff yeah okay good so there are a couple of things to say about this the first thing to say is that they're probably right to make it if that's the view they ultimately want to defend like take the a priori asymmetry argument first of all so you've got a couple of scenarios here you take the evil god hypothesis you take the good god hypothesis if the evil god hypothesis is a priori absurd, but the good god hypothesis is a priori reasonable, then if you don't bracket, it looks like you've got a significant asymmetry favoring one over the other. There's a, uh, there's a qualification which we should talk about maybe, and we'll get to that in a second. Second of all, you might say that actually the good god hypothesis is a priori incoherence, but the evil god hypothesis isn't something along those lines. Well, what's the point of running an evil god challenge if it turns out that the good god hypothesis is a priori incoherent? You don't need to run an argument. You just go, here's the argument for why there couldn't be that god. And so there's no point in running the challenge. Now, let's say then that you said that the evil god hypothesis wasn't a priori absurd. It was a priori coherent and the same for the good god hypothesis. Then... Okay, you might then run these a posteriori arguments against for the existence of God, so the problem of evil or the problem of good. And ultimately, this is what Stephen and Asher do. They say it doesn't matter, and some, lots of other people do in this in the literature before they do it as well. So they're, they're part of a longer tradition of people that say it does not matter whether or not the evil God hypothesis is a priori incoherent. You can still run an argument against that hypothesis regardless of whether or not it's a it's a well-grounded hypothesis for lack of a better term so they say the argument runs like this you can rule out the existence of evil god because there is a significant amount of goodness in the world and if you can rule out the existence of an evil god because of the significant amount of goodness in the world then you can rule out the existence of a good God because of the significant amount of evil in the world. And ultimately, that's certainly what Stephen thinks the challenge is. He's recently contributed a chapter to my forthcoming collection, uh, Philosophers on God Talking About Existence, where he makes the same case. And he was one of the examiners for my PhD thesis. And he said, look, I think your argument on the whole would change my mind on certain points. I think overall the argument is convincing. But my argument is this. This is my challenge. So he does do that bracketing. Now, I want to extend my argument a little bit further. And this isn't necessarily the ultimate aim of uh, my argument. But I think you could extend it further in this way. That I think the arguments for thinking that the evil God hypothesis is a priori absurd are no... Apologies. I think the arguments for thinking that the arguments for evil God being a posteriori absurd are no less reasonable than the arguments for thinking that the evil God hypothesis is a posteriori reasonable. In really basic terms, what that means is, I don't think the amount of goodness in the world means that there's not an evil God. I think there are other reasons for why that's the case. And I don't think you can rule out 
the existence of an evil God because of the amount of goodness in the world. I think we should be really skeptical of people that say they can measure the amounts of goodness, evil in the world and draw these huge conclusions from them. I think you can pick and choose your examples quite nicely well, to fit your, to fit your argument. I think that it's it's silly of us to, to think we can can draw those sorts of conclusions. And that's something that Stephen himself says in his paper. He says, like, these estimations are way beyond our capacity to to make. So he recognizes those principles, and so do people like William Lane Craig and the like to his opponents. So ultimately, I think we should be agnostic as to whether or not the evil god hypothesis is absurd. And yeah, we said... So if, if that's the case, if that argument was to go through, then my argument would constitute a solution to the challenge. All right. Awesome. Uh, and that actually leads into uh, two. I've got two final questions on my list, if, if that's cool. Um, and it kind of so you mentioned your take on the problem of good for an evil God. Um, one of my fans, uh, Harry Stark, really wanted me to ask you in the first place, just what's your take on the problem of evil? Um, for atheism. Do you, do you think that this is a disproof against a good God's existence then in the same way you think the problem of good doesn't work to disprove an evil God or like, what's your take? Uh, good. I, you, so I thought you were asking someone else there because you said, what was your take on the problem of evil against atheism, which is a separate but in equally interesting argument. Oh, well, that's, that's one that, that... that's coming up next. Yeah. Oh, is it? Okay. That's why you've, why you've mentioned it. Uh, so I'll focus on the problem of evil against theism or orthodox theism first then. Yeah. Um, my own take on it, I don't think that that is the best reason to reject the existence of God. I think actually the theodicies and the defenses cumulatively do a good job of defending the existence of the traditional theist, uh, the traditional theist views. And um, so, yeah, I'm, I like all those arguments. I think they do good work. And I know that I realize more and more that I'm becoming more of an outlier thinking, saying things like, I think the theology and defenses do a good job, or the ontological argument is the best argument for God. I know those are potentially overly kooky things to be saying, but yeah, I, I, I don't think the problem of evil rules out the existence of the God of Christianity. Okay, so you kind of spoiled my surprise here. I was going to try to look clever, but uh, let me ask it anyways here. So, okay, well, let's flip it. You know, there, there are philosophers like, uh, I think it's Stuart Goats, for example, and others who mm. have kind of flipped this and said, look, the existence of evil actually proves that God exists. Um, so, yeah, you know, you already know about this, obviously. So let me turn it to you. What, what's your take on, on this type of argument for theism from evil? Well, I... Uh, I thought, again, you were going to be mentioning a different argument. So I was thinking of Eugene Nagasawa's wonderful paper on the topic, which is the problem of evil against atheism that says, atheists think on the whole the world is a good place, but there is evil in the world, systemic evil, the evils created by the underlying process of evolution by natural selection, and therefore atheists are unjustified in thinking the world is a good place, i.e. there's a problem of evil for atheists. But your argument there that... The existence of evil actually shows that the good God exists. Are you saying there that the existence of evils to allow for greater goods is evidence that God is good rather than uh, you know, doesn't exist at all? Is that is that what you're getting at? 
Um, so I'm happy to go with uh, like Yuji Nagasawa's version, but yeah, like there there are different versions and stuff. I think some some people would say like it, it pre in some ways it even presupposes this ontological category of, of evil. You need a god to to ground these objective morals and and or immoral type things that happen. But yeah, let, let's go with the Yuji Nagasawa one if that's the one you're familiar with. So. Yeah, okay, good. Well, it's quite a separate argument, I think, to the one you had in mind. But my view on Eugen's version of the problem of evil for atheists is, I suppose I've got a few different thoughts in it that I'll try and bring to the forefront of my mind. So theists think that the world is, uh, theists and atheists, he says, are existential optimists in that they think that the world is on the whole a good place and they, sh they are happy and pleased to be alive. But the atheist especially is presumably committed to the systemic evil, which is evolution by natural selection, which pumps out the pain and suffering of countless sentient creatures across millions of years. And that's a great evil. Not only the events and the types of suffering, like earthquakes and cancers, etc., but actually the system that produces them as well is evil as well. And so it looks like you've got this insurmountable amount of evil against the view that the world is a good place. And so I think the solution for the uh, the atheist there is just to go, yeah, the world's not a good place. Like, I'm expressing my gratitude to not be a part of all that suffering and pain. I'm expressing my gratitude to be at this point in the history of existence. I'm not saying that on the whole, the world is good. So I recant my existential optimism and I'm now a pessimist. I think that's probably the best response for the atheist, that especially if you want to run the problem of evil against theism, is that on the whole, the world isn't a wonderful place. You might be agnostic as to the overall um, moral qualities of the universe, or uh, you might think that it's bad, but you certainly can't think that all things are bright and beautiful. And then on the other hand, uh, for the theist, it becomes much bigger of a problem because the theist can't just go, well, mainstream views of contemporary theism tend to think that the world is on the whole good. You know, it's not the view amongst um, everybody in the history of philosophy of religion for sure that to exist is to suffer and is just this test that etc to get you into the good place. On the whole existence is great for the theist. You've got this heavenly union with God but here on earth don't expect things to be um, all Paul Rudd movies and popcorn. There's going to be some uh, unfortunate things like Adam Sandler's movies and <laughs> and the like as well, right? So, okay, so what's the point? If you're a theist, you can't just go, oh, no, I changed my mind, the world's crap. You've got to go, oh, no, like, I now take it back that this is the reason why God created the world, that God has these motivations, those motivations. So the implications are a lot bigger for the, for the theist. Um, but Eugen thinks that all of these are justified by the existence of this infinite place of happiness and pleasure, i.e. heaven, and that when you look at the big picture for the theist, yes, you've got this part of the canvas, which is bloody and red and horrible because of the systemic problem of evil and the, all the evils that exist in the world because of natural selection, but you've also got this extra part of the canvas, which is infinitely great because it's, uh, it's this place of eternal salvation in heaven. That kind of response relies on you rejecting traditional views for listeners i'm using air quotes there rather than people who are just people who are just watching right the 
you have to reject a place of infinite suffering for the infinite goodness of heaven to outweigh the finite suffering of our world. You have to reject the infinite suffering of hell as well. So it makes you modify your metaphysics a lot more on the theist's account than it would for the atheist's account. But probably, a yeah, it's a problem for both views, I suppose. Okay. 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 Interesting. So, all right. So yeah, I think that's, that's it for my list here. Uh, let me just turn it to you before we go to, um, I've got one audience question kind of thing, but cool. um, is there anything I've missed about these topics or is there something that you think is really important to either talk about or to discuss about these mm. issues that we've been. You put me on the spot a bit. Yeah. I should be expect to be put on the spot because you're interviewing yeah. me after all, but I don't, Think I suppose we could speak about why I think your position on the evil god challenge, uh, or your preference towards the weak evil god challenge, is um, unreasonable. I, I suppose I don't want to say unreasonable. Perhaps that's a little bit too, too, too mean to put <laughs> no, it that way. That's fine. Um, so you I put think it on the spot, so you, you can say it. But <laughs> so I've got I've got a note on in in, in my notes here where I, I describe your view as this. I say. Dale Glover argues that the weak evil god challenge should be preferred over strong evil god challenges because its conclusion is more modest. However, I maintain that the premises of what I call the strong combined challenge are no less plausible than those in the weak evil god challenge. Right. So just reading that to remind myself of the contention. Mm -hmm. The evil god challenge, as Stephen Law and Asher and everyone else puts it forward, which rejects the existence of the Christian god, because it's a strong version of the challenge and says it's unreasonable to be a Christian because of this. The premises are no less controversial than the weak evil God challenge, which just says, well, you know, the, you're just going to have to give us a reason, right? So the conclusion of the strong one says the good God hypothesis is unreasonable and you shouldn't be a theist. And your weak version says, oh, well, you just need to answer the problem. But the premises of both arguments are, are no less contentious than one another. The, there's, there's not much building on them at all. So you want to put forward the strongest version of the challenge that you have, right? Rather than the weakest version, if you're justified in doing so. So I think you overestimate perhaps the potency of the problem. But I don't think ultimately that's a problem for you because I think you've got good solutions at hand as a as an orthodox theist. Yeah, it's uh, I'm trying to find my slides because I, I I put the two the different versions um in premise format but it's mm. obviously i don't have i've got to respond so be, essentially the issue for me is that look the weak challenge and all the strong versions they all have the same premises up to a certain point but yeah. then the strong versions have additional premises and these carry with it addi an additional burden of proof that i don't think is necessary for the evil god challenge to work so for example that you've got to additionally prove that the evil god is in fact absurd and I don't think they can meet their burden of proof on that front. Yeah. With the weak version, you don't need to do that. If if you are just wanting to defeat in an undercutting way the good God theist justification or warrant for believing in a good God, establishing the symmetry thesis alone, it does that kind of thing. Yeah. You don't need to say, and they're absurd, and an evil God's absurd. That That's not needed. So that's why I think the weak God, it's the most uh, efficient and the most challenging because it doesn't tack on these in my opinion unwarranted additional premises that's really good i like that response i think that's the that's a it's a convincing response on your behalf i think perhaps you are right in regards to 
responding to Asher and Stephen that you say, well, how are you going to show that the evil God hypothesis is absurd? And I agree with you there. And I have this long section of the book, which I explained why we should be agnostic as to evil God's absurdity. I think the arguments for its uh, evil God's non-absurdity are just as or roughly as reasonable as evil God's absurdity. And so I think I, I suppose I agree with both of the positions here, Stephen and Asher and yourself as well, and say, well, actually, here's a middle way, which doesn't commit you to having to argue for evil God's absurdity, but is no less controversial than the premises of the weak challenge. So perhaps um, if you're interested in it, I'll make sure you get a, a copy of the, the book and I'll be really interested in your thoughts on it. And obviously listeners can know where to get it um, through the links. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, send that to me. I, I'd be glad to give it a, give you my feedback and take a look. So, all right, awesome. So, I got one question here, and uh, it's a bit of a it's it's a question for me. So, I'm gonna give my answer, but then obviously Jack's the guest, so I'm gonna have you evaluate my answer, I guess. But um, so it's kind of about this uh, closed, um, you know, the the conservation of energy. It's related to this we're in a closed universe, you know, how is this consistent with the laws of thermodynamics and stuff like that? Um, so let me just, um, I did a, sh uh, a solo show years ago. Um, and it's my, uh, substance dualism part four episode, which I'll link to in the blog, but here's how I kind of answered that question back in the day. Uh, so is that uh, showing up there, Jack? Can you guys see that? I can see it. Yeah. Okay, so I gave four responses to this, you know, thermodynamics thing. So in the first place, the laws of thermodynamics, um, it's not a metaphysical law or principle, right? It's just a physical or, yeah, within the laws of physics. And I think that we've given enough evidence to think that there could be, you know, for example, free will and how that works. If you believe in libertarian free will, we have things beyond the laws of physics that happen all the time certainly a God who is at least spaceless. I wouldn't agree that God is timeless. I think he is temporal. Um, but yeah, he can input things into the system. So that's the next thing is, look, we're, the universe isn't a closed system. That's just an assumption. I would say it's an open system with God outside of the universe. Um, also in terms of, so it could be that, look, that when we're having dualism interactionism, there is some energy that's uh, going on there, but it's so negligible. It's just not detectable with our modern scientific equipment. And this would solve this issue as well. Um, and then the fourth response is that, uh, look, even with modern physics, quantum entanglement phenomena kind of disproves that this is an issue as well, because we know scientifically that A can cause B without any need to create new energy or, or, even the possibility of having an energy transfer because it, it can't travel over those distances and stuff like that. So these, these were kind of how I answered that objection, but obviously Jack, you're, um, you're the guest. So I just wanted to like, what, what, what do you make of some of those answers? Do you think that that can help solve this issue in any way, or you're not, not convinced? I was too busy enjoying your answer to it there. Uh, I think oh. you, I, I, I couldn't add much of uh, any value comparison to what you just said, so I won't I won't spoil what was a what was an interesting answer to the question. All right, cool. Do you, um, do you think I'm right or wrong then, just to get your take? 
I don't know. I didn't really. <laughs> I <laughs> thought. I think the problem with conservation. I don't know. I, I suppose I I I'd need to know more about it and some of the ins and outs. I don't want to. I I I don't want to give the answer a, a blessing or or give it a or or bring it down without knowing enough enough about it. So if respectfully, I'll I'll stand back and say it sounded very impressive, but I need to I need to know more. No problem. No problem. All right, cool. So yeah, that that kind of does it for my for my list of questions. Um, I hope that you had a good time on, on your end and uh, you felt you got to have your fair say on some of these important topics. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I, I thought it was a, a good, interesting conversation. It was good to hear your thoughts on some of the stuff relating to the evil God challenge and in your defense of dualism as well. And hopefully I've convinced you of the unreasonability of substance dualism and and maybe you'll be on board with more pantheistic worldview in which we can still defeat the evil God challenge. Absolutely. You've you've given me stuff to think about for sure. Kind of thing. I, <laughs> I haven't given up the substance dualism yet. But yeah. Awesome. All right, cool. Well, thank you so much again, Jack. This has been this has been great. It's been a long time coming. I think we've been trying to schedule this for the past mm couple of years there it's still so it's, it's been awesome finally getting you on and to talk about this stuff um so yeah so just so the audience knows next uh week uh dr Sai gart uh the biochemist is going to be coming on and we're going to be talking to him about his argument for god from biology in his area of expertise so look out for that next week and on that have a have a great week everybody great thank you dale thank you everybody no problem